0: We're back with another episode of Emerging Environments. This week on the podcast, we're speaking with professor and author Thomas Homer Dixon. Thomas has a background in political science, but his research and writing over the years has been incredibly interdisciplinary and expansive. In his own words, he quote, uses complexity science to examine threats to global security, especially economic instability, environmental stress, ideological polarization, and mass violence, and how people, organizations, and societies can respond to these threats, unquote. Thomas spent time at both the University of Toronto and the University of Waterloo, but has recently taken up the position of Executive Director of the Cascade Institute at Royal Roads University in Victoria, British Columbia.
1: In our interview, Thomas reflected on some of his previous books and writings, including The Upside of Down and Carbon Shift, and how this work connects with his current role at the Cascade Institute. He and his collaborators are examining innovative ways to maximize greenhouse gas emissions cuts, address intersecting threats to global environmental and socioeconomic stability, and how to catalyze transformative change. We also spoke about his new book, Commanding Hope, which examines the idea of hope in the context of how to address current global environmental challenges. Here, he considers hope from a psychological perspective at the level of the individual and their associated worldviews, and also uses several historical examples where hopeful interventions have driven positive societal transitions. We definitely recommend picking up the book for its big-picture perspective on the importance of hope for dealing with our current environmental predicament, and also to check out Thomas's unique technical approach towards a mapping of hope, both for individuals and our broader collective future.
0: As a side note, during the interview, there was a tornado warning in my area, and I had to suddenly and quickly leave the interview due to the storm. So there is a bit of a disruption in the interview partway through.
1: So Thomas, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today.
2: I'm delighted to
1: be with you. So we'd like to start by asking you about your early years. So we were wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your story, including you know where you grew up and what got you interested in
2: uh, what you're studying and writing about now. Sure. So I grew up on uh, Vancouver Island, and in fact, I'm on Vancouver Island again now after having been away for more than four decades in a rural area outside of Victoria. Uh, my mother, uh, who died when I was fairly young, when she was when I was 13, uh, was a a biologist, zoologist, and and a wildlife illustrator. And uh, enormously capacious appetite for knowledge and uh, a a very scientific approach to the world. My dad was a forester. Uh, He was responsible for the forestry and logging that happened within the Greater Victoria Water District, which is a uh, 15,000, 20,000 hectare region that supplies the water for the city of Victoria one of the last fully protected watershed supplies in in North America, mm. so a an extraordinarily pristine environment of old growth west West Coast forest. So I basically grew up outdoors, hunting and fishing and thrashing around in the woods, uh, often on my own when I was a kid. Uh, sometimes lost, mm-hmm. which terrified my parents, and uh, then I uh, <clears throat> I started out my. Um, academic work, my serious academic work at the University of Victoria in the 1970s for a couple of years. Very interested in the causes of the arms race between the United States and the Soviet Union. I think growing up in such a pacific, idyllic world and seeing all the conflict around the world made me think that, that you know, what is this? It's so strange. It's bizarre. How can people do this to each other? So I focus very much on conflict and all the way through my academic career, uh, the sources of human conflict and mass violence have been a central focus. And uh, I went on to finish my undergraduate degree at Carleton University in Ottawa because I wanted to be at kind of the center of political things, Mm -hmm. finished in the early 80s, and then continued uh, a number of years later with my doctorate at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where I actually focused very much on defense and arms control issues, international relations, and conflict theory. I did a variety of things along the way, including founding a national student organization, uh, the student branch of the global pugwash movement in Canada. And, uh, and, and that was a very interesting exercise because it brought people from all different disciplines together to talk about the ethical implications of science and what scientists should be doing to try to uh, make the world a better place and whether how, how much they should be involved in politics and policy. Um, <clears throat> then I came back to Canada after my doctorate and... Uh, went to uh, the University of Toronto, as it turns out. Mm -hmm. spent 20 years at U of T, wonderful, wonderful university. At the University College, uh, helped set up the Peace and Conflict program there, eventually became the Trudeau Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies. Was in the political science department, eventually as a full professor, and the George Ignatieff Chair of Peace and Conflict Studies in University College. And then went on to the University of Waterloo, Um, not out of any, dissatisfaction with the University of Toronto, but there was a really exciting opportunity there that I wanted to pursue at the new Balsillie School of International Affairs. I spent a dozen years there. So now we're we're out, that's 40, 40 plus years out East. Towards the end, about 2016, about the election of President Trump, I thought exactly what am I doing and how is this helping the world? And I've accumulated all of this knowledge and I, these ideas and worked with extraordinary people over 40 years. What can be done to try to accelerate change? And that's why I came back to Vancouver Island, to Royal Roads University, uh, where I played when I was a kid, actually, 60 years ago in the woods around here to set up the new Cascade Institute, which is really about creating positive cascades of change in the world. Yeah,
1: definitely a fascinating career path. So can you tell us about the Cascade Institute and perhaps a couple examples of things that you're working on there? Sure. So...
2: My, my move from the University of Waterloo to set up the Cascade Institute was, was not, you know, it, it wasn't an exercise in dismissing the importance of the academic and scientific world. It was just a sense that I was approaching the end of my career and had accumulated a, this enormous amount of scientific and, and also practical knowledge and have a sense of, of putting it to use fast, because there is this just enormous sense of urgency in the world. Uh, to use a sports metaphor, um, we're deep in our end zone, humanity. And we have maybe a couple of passes to get the, the, the football right down to the, the other end. end. If you're talking about North American football, we need a Hail Mary pass. What are the Hail Mary passes that are possible at this stage? And in my latest book, uh, Commanding Hope, I, I, which I imagine we're going to talk about, I spent quite a bit of time looking at what would be enough, for instance, to deal with the climate change problem enough to keep us below 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius in terms of technologies, policies, new institutions, economic uh, regulations, for example, is not feasible. It's not politically, socially, technologically feasible for a whole bunch of reasons. And what's feasible isn't gonna get as close to 1.5 or 2 degrees. We're shooting way past to 2.5, maybe even 3 degrees, which will devastate the world our children will inhe- inherit. So this just—I think—we're all feeling this now. This extraordinary sense of urgency, and, and so the desire to set up the Cascade Institute came out of that sense of urgency. And I mentioned that I was, you know, my f- central focus has been on conflict, but my, in a sense, ontological frame—the way I approach these issues in terms of my deep conceptual understanding—is as a complexity scientist.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So I'm a complex systems guy, which is a technical category. Um, there's a whole body of complexity science that uh, understands the world in a particular way. and Maybe we can get into that a uh, bit. But one of the key things about complexity and complex systems, and we're surrounded by them, our societies are complex systems, our brains are complex systems, ecologies are complex systems, our economies are complex systems, our social media environments are complex systems, um, is that they have this capacity to flip from one state to the other. Sometimes in certain circumstances, with a relatively small push. So, we're looking in the Cascade Institute for the places where we can make those relatively small pushes to flip things in a more positive direction. Now, these are called nonlinear shifts or, or tipping points or tipping events. Most people think of these sudden changes as really scary and usually taking us to a really bad place. We think of the collapse of the cod fishery, for example off the East Coast or the 2007-2008 financial crisis, uh, the breakout of a war or something. Um, but actually, when you look around, you see that sometimes these tipping events can lead us to much better places, the collapse of apartheid, uh, the collapse of the East Bloc and the Soviet Bloc, um, the, the rapid uh, change in attitudes towards gay marriage, for mm-hmm. example. So, so what are the opportunities for putting humanity on a much more positive trajectory by finding these tipping, tipping points or sensitive, some, some people call them sensitive intervention points. So that's really mobilizing complexity science and applying it in a very practical way to try to accelerate change. So you asked for an example. Cascade Institute has only been up and running for two years, um, uh, but we have now uh, some seven projects underway, four of which are Uh, hot, moving very fast. One of them is on uh, ultra-deep geothermal power. Mm -hmm. So this is a technology that I think is actually way, way better. In fact, we all agree within the Cascade Institute, which is why we're studying it, way better than uh, photovoltaic solar or wind power. I mean, when people are talking about the zero carbon energy transition, everybody immediately points to hydro, solar, wind. Maybe nuclear, big disputes about that. Mm -hmm. Well, hydro, solar and wind have a really fundamentally intractable problem, which is uh, what's called a power density problem. They only generate so many watts per square meter, and they tend to take up enormous tracts of territory to generate the amount of power we need to run our complex societies. We think ultra deep geothermal could be a much more much more interesting contender in this competition for what kind of power sources we're going to have in a zero carbon future, high power density. You, you drill down into the earth, 10 to 15 kilometers, uh, pump fluid down there, bring it back up to the surface. To, you tap that heat that's emanating from the core of the earth and you bring very hot water back to the surface and use it to drive turbines. Mm-hmm. So you get, you, you don't take up a lot of surface of the planet, but you generate enormous amounts of energy. So we think this is a technological tipping opportunity, uh, relatively tractable engineering problems that could be cracked. And it turns out that Canada is really well situated to crack those problems. We are really good at drilling holes in the ground as it Mm. turns out. And we have a lot of financial capital that is a practice in investing in resource extraction and resource industries. So we make the pitch that Canada should be leading the world with the development of this technology and uh and th- there's an example now, that's a technological run one yeah we we operate across a spectrum that we call a wit spectrum worldviews institutions and technologies uh on the assumption that our societies are kind of consist of coupled sets of these worldviews institutions and technologies so we also have projects on belief systems for instance the belief systems of pension managers we have uh projects on institutions. Again, the pension project is really about pension institutions uh, where we're very interested in the belief systems of Canadians and how they're changing over time and how they are maybe increasing polarization or decreasing polarization around issues like climate change. So we, across the whole WIT spectrum of worldviews, institutions, and technologies in our projects. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fascinating. I'll pass it
1: over to Karen.
0: So I just wanted, before I get into a question... I just got like a warning on my phone that there's like a tornado warning in my mobile area. So, Are you in Ottawa? Um, I'm near Belleville at the moment.
2: Yeah, I've heard that uh, Ottawa was being there was a tornado warning there. So,
0: so I keep looking out over the window to see, just to see like if I need to run to the basement or something. Makes it all very um,
2: real, doesn't it? That's the stuff yeah. we're talking about.
0: <laughs> anyway, so I apologize for um, kind of looking to the side occasionally. No, that's fine. <laughs> Um, since we're kind of talking a little bit about energy and, and that sort of thing, um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about, you know, you had a previous book um, called The Carbon Shift and, you know, published in 2009, I believe. So it's, you know, been quite a while since this came out. Um, and so in this book you you talk about kind of these this convergence of of the climate change crisis as we call it now <laughs> not so much at that time but and also the the issue of peak oil and these kind of things converging um and then peak oil kind of be, seemed to become less of a concern as sort of fracking I guess um yes. started to expand and um and that sort of thing and and so I'm wondering if you can reflect a little bit on you know what Um, what you're what was being talked about in 2009 and kind of where we are now and and I guess I'm curious to know whether this this issue around peak oil and the fact that it it didn't kind of materialize in the same way that I guess it had originally been kind of uh, discussed at that time did did that affect how how (laughs) <laughs> how little action there's been on climate change in recent years that, you know, we, oh, okay, we have fracking. We, we don't need to worry about things. Let's just carry on as, as before.
2: I think it did, but the story around peak oil and around fracking is actually a really interesting one. So a little bit before, uh, carbon shift came out, I published that the carbon shift was an edited volume, um, mm-hmm. of chapters from various experts. Um, But prior to that, I published uh, my second book for general audiences, The The Upside of Down, which uh, focused a lot on the role of energy in society and had an extended discussion of the peak oil hypothesis, Mm. which I substantially endorsed. Uh, So that was published in 2006. And and that was before fracking really started. And I remember one expert I was consulting with said, watch this technology, this is going to be a big deal. Mm. it's going to change the it's going to change the the framing of the whole conversation around oil supply and uh, you know i'm c- completely receptive to that kind of thing but the book was out and and uh, the short story is that uh, a lot of people who are somewhat uninformed or let's say only partially informed about this issue think that the peak oil hypothesis has been disproven but it hasn't been actually because conventional oil production did peak and Mm -hmm. is declining fast okay what hasn't peaked is unconventional oil production in particular from heavy oil deposits like the oil sands uh offshore production although that is peaking in many places uh and then uh finally these big um light oil uh tight oil basins in the permian Uh, and in the Dakotas in the United States. And it turns out the United States has a particular kind of geography in those regions that's unlike other geographies in the world. It's actually quite hard to do what they're doing in the United States and other parts of the world. Um, But boy, are they ever doing it in the United States has basically doubled its oil production capacity within a relatively short period of time. So that exploded and largely compensated for the decline in conventional oil. And by conventional oil, we mean the kind that we got from Leduc and Alberta you know, the the old images of the gushers in Texas and Pennsylvania, where you and then in, in Saudi Arabia, where you sometimes drill some a relatively small number of meters into the ground and the stuff blows up to the surface, you know, in those original. And then we've had to go deeper and deeper and go into more hostile environments to get that oil. But but conventional oil involves conventional drilling rigs on land. So we've tapped out most of those sources. And uh, and so the energy energy requirement to find more conventional oil has soared which was one of the arguments that i made in the upside down that the energy required to find that kind of energy has has uh, climbed the energy requirement has climbed a great deal so here's the thing about fracking fracking has a very high energy requirement because you you have to not only do you drill down into these deposits of shale you then have to drill horizontally through them. Then you have to pressurize them and, cr- and literally crack the rock and pump in huge quantities of, of uh, ag- aggregate material like sand to hold those cracks open so you can extract the fluid, right? The, the, uh, the, light, the light oil. Um, all of that takes an enormous amount of energy. If you look at one of these wells, these fracking wells that sometimes have 20 or 30 uh, semi-trailer trucks with huge pumps on them, generating the pressure necessary to pressurize and crack the rock. Right? So these are expensive wells to drill. Now they've gotten a lot better at it because they drill a lot of them at the same time and they've, they've really r- increased efficiency. But the bottom line is that fracking would not have been possible in an environment where you didn't have incredibly cheap money to borrow. Cause almost all of these companies in the United States have never made any money. They they borrowed enormous amounts of money, invested it in fracking. And and this is an environment post 2007, 2008, where people were looking for high returns on their investments um, because interest rates were so low and the environment was deflationary. The stock market wasn't performing very well. And people were looking for their old returns of 7, 8, 9%. And this was a place where they could throw money. And it became basically a big Ponzi scheme. Uh, If you look at the, if you look at the, the fracking companies in the United States—very, very few of them have ever made money, and there have been multiple rounds of bankruptcy as a result. So this—it was a particular confluence of a macroeconomic environment with very low interest rates that allowed uh, huge resources to be invested in this industry. It probably, almost certainly, wouldn't have happened if interest rates had been had been higher, and if the if the market had been more demanding in terms of profits, these companies actually generating profits. So it was a very unusual situation. Nonetheless, to get to your specific question about, you know, has this delayed the response to, say, for instance, climate issues, absolutely no question about it. Having all of that oil, which was essentially subsidized by this by borrowing, having all of that oil gush onto the global market, keeping prices down under $60 to $70 a barrel, sometimes dropping into the 40s uh certainly delayed the transition to a a zero carbon future enormously now we're in a different situation now now the energy when we can talk about this bit i won't go on about it but the energy energy circumstances are in our world have completely reconfigured themselves in the context of the ukraine russia war Mm -hmm. and uh and also in the context of the fact that now people are starting to realize that climate change is a real problem, and probably these issues, these these sources of energy are have a have a best buy date on them. They're going to have to be ramped down, no matter how cheap or how expensive they are. We've just got to get rid of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's a it's a radically different world now than it was back uh, when fracking first came onto the scene in the mid two thousands.
0: Hmm. Yeah. And so you mentioned the the Russian-Ukraine war that, that's going on right now. And, um, and obviously, energy sovereignty is something kind of maybe top of mind, particularly in Europe at the moment. How, how do you think this, this conflict it can potentially you know, accelerate um, energy transition or adoption of renewables um, going forward?
2: I'm having a lot of conversations with people about exactly this issue, various experts. And the consensus, I would say, is that there's no consensus yet. Maybe mm-hmm. There are cross-cutting pressures, and we're not really sure how this is going to work out. Mm-hmm. Now, first of all, I mean, obviously, gas prices are really high. I mean, they're incredibly high in the United States, Six fifty closing on $7 a barrel in California, California. Yeah. Uh, gallon i should say close to five dollars on average across the united states four dollars a gallon in the united states is it was kind of a break point in terms of people's threshold of acceptance right Mm -hmm. so we're way past that now um and i think that encourages the adoption of evs i have an Mm -hmm. ev i haven't been Mm -hmm. affected by by uh these gas prices at all i just wave at the gas station. As I go by, <laughs> they're incredibly <laughs> cheap to run. You know, it's like having a free co- free transportation, because there's no repairs on them. You know, the guy, the guy, when I, when we bought the car, uh, I said, so how often do I have to bring it in for servicing? And he opened up the manual and he said, well, let's take a look. And he said, well, you know, at 12,000 kilometers, you should bring it in to have the tires rotated and at 20,000, we should check the windshield wipers. Th- they don't take any servicing, which is one reason, of course, the big, auto companies aren't flogging them because they make a lot of money from the servicing. But, but I think what people are starting to realize with the longer range of EVs, that this is a seriously cool technology, regardless of the environmental impact. And, and if, if fuel is going to be so expensive, let's uh, ditch the internal combustion engines and move to EVs. So, mm-hmm. so that's good. That's good news. I think Europe is recognizing that, that, uh, it's got a real problem with energy sovereignty and energy security here and and they can import a lot of liquefied natural gas and they're going to do that but over the long run they need to have some autonomy They need energy autonomy. They need to be as independent as possible. We're going to find this on the food front, too. There's going to be a retreat to a certain amount of autarky, regional and national autarky, the capacity to provide essential goods and services within your sovereign control. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I've been arguing ever since the Upside of Down came out that we had to decomplexify and de-link the world a bit because otherwise we're too vulnerable to shocks. But Mm -hmm. um, Europe's pathway there is really hard. I mean, this is, you know, it turns out that climate change produces these heat dome things, and all of a sudden the wind disappears. And if Mm -hmm. you're really relying upon wind, then that's a problem. Uh, By the way, you know, Soto Voce, what about ultra deep geothermal? Right. (laughs) So, so, you know, in the meantime, though, we're seeing India gobble up a whole bunch of cheap Russian oil. Uh, China is starting to ramp up coal production again. I mean, it's a it's the short in the short run. I think this could actually entrench fossil fuel consumption more. Higher uh, petroleum prices may encourage another round of drilling. Although I think a lot of these companies have been burnt before. They st- roll out all the rigs they do all the capital investment and then the price collapses Mm -hmm. so the bottom line is there's going to be a demand constraint going forward because people are going to be moving away because of climate change issues from fossil fuels for transportation purposes so i'm not sure you're going to see a huge huge flux of investment in drilling this time Mm -hmm. around which is going to constrain it's going to constrain production and keep prices high Mm. Okay. So very complex environment. Um, Mm. uh, I'm disturbed by what we're seeing on the coal front. Uh, Mm. But over time, I think that it will accelerate. If, If I have a guess here, it's going to accelerate the transition. This war is going to make us realize, once again, that this dependence on fossil fuels makes us vulnerable in a whole bunch of ways. And it it subsidizes some of the worst regimes in the world, right? And that's uh, that's not what we should be doing. You look at the worst regimes in the world, and, and they're and they're kleptocratic petrostates in many cases.
0: Mm-hmm. 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 And maybe just to kind of wrap up this this part of the conversation about energy, uh, so. From, I'm thinking about Germany, for example. So they previously had quite a bit of nuclear capacity. And then kind of after Fukushima, there was, you know, a lot of backlash. And, and those have all been, I think, just recently decommissioned. Um, I they have the fi- two,
2: more, two more to Do shut down at this they point.
0: They have two so, more. OK. Yeah. Um, and so you mentioned like, you know, new, earlier in the conversation, is nuclear part of the uh, the transition formula or not i'm curious to get your impressions from you know when you taking this kind of energy security piece into account um yes. where does nuclear fit into the equation
2: yes so um after fukushima i wrote a piece in the globe saying this is basically the end of the nuclear power industry and it wasn't in china but it was pretty well for the rest of the world um and i think the Germans. I can understand why they did it, but I think they made an enormous mistake, and I think they're recognizing that now. Uh, I am not a huge fan of nuclear power for for a variety of reasons. One is we really haven't figured out how to make waste disposal socially acceptable. Um, there are significant proliferation risks with most of these technologies. Uh, the The technology is unforgiving. And and just look how the friction of excitement and fear that we got when there was, you know, when the Russians moved into Chernobyl and when one of the nuclear power stations, when there was a firefight around a nuclear power station in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. They depend fundamentally on a coherent, stable governance and institutional and economic structure. With an ultra deep geothermal plant, (laughs) plug, uh, you know, if the power goes down or if all the technicians run away, the pumps stop and everything stops and it's not a big deal, right? Mm -hmm. You know the water stops circulating in the ground.
0: Mm-hmm. if that
2: happens with a nuclear plant, it blows up potentially, right or the waste <laughs> the waste pits you know it, it, you don't aren't cooling them properly and the stuff burns and 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 uh, issues enormous amounts of emissions into the atmosphere so radioactive material so and and then the last thing about nuclear that concerns me is that it's um extremely capital intensive. And if you look at most of the nuclear developments in the world, the capital costs for plant construction have just soared in the last 15 to 20 years, which has really been a constraint on what was called the nuclear renaissance. It was going to come back and there were going to be enormous rollout of nuclear plants. But it turns out that every time they plan one of these things, the capital costs double or triple or quadruple in the, between the time the plant is initiated and the time that it's finalized. So what about small modular nuclear reactors, Mm -hmm. uh, SMNRs. That's supposedly the the savior. And I think there's something there. Smaller reactors, much more self-contained, mass-produced, so you can get economies of scale. The problem is, and there was a paper that was published just a few weeks ago, uh, it turns out that that, that inherent to the technology of smallness is a more intractable waste problem you act, they actually, for you know, the kilowatt hour generated, produce a lot more waste, and a lot more waste that's harder to deal with. So here's the thing. We can't be purists about this. The climate problem is so urgent that we have to throw everything at it, including nuclear. We should not be shutting down existing nuclear plants. There's too much embedded and embodied energy in them uh, and capital investment. We should try to keep them running as long as possible. Um, we should be exploring new kinds of nuclear technology. Uh, I, I, I think we've got to have this this arrow in our quiver. We've got to use it when we can, when it makes sense. But I don't think it's it's it. I don't. I'm not on the Bill Gates uh, sheet of music here and thinking that this is this is the way out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's that's why we're making such a strong pitch for ultra deep geothermal. Which, by the way can be sort of lined up against nuclear power in this way. 50% of the energy that comes from the Earth's core is a function of essentially radioactive decay in the Earth's core. So we have a massive reactor, which is really well shielded by the mantle and the crust. Let's tap that heat. Instead of building a whole bunch of reactors on the surface of the planet and having all of the waste issues and proliferation issues associated with them, let's just tap the heat of the best shielded reactor on the planet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that can, that can provide us for the power for eternity, essentially.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I mean, as the planet warms, cooling of these <laughs> nuclear facilities becomes, oh becomes an issue. Big yeah.
2: deal. Big deal. Yeah. You get, because you've got to have that, that temperature differential. That's right. Mm-hmm. And the other thing with, as the planet warms with respect to solar and wind uh those are fundamentally vulnerable facilities in, mm-hmm. to storms to hailstorms for solar panels to uh, um, uh, the loss of wind as i mentioned for uh, wind turbines um, you want to have power systems that are essentially resilient and robust in the face of um the enormous kinds of disasters and infrastructural damage that we're going to get as a result of climate change mm-hmm.
0: All right, yeah. I'm going to pass it back over to Stu to 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 talk about um, your most recent book, Commanding Hope.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, congrats on the publication of your, your newest book, Commanding Hope. Um, it's fantastic. So, we we wanted to explore that a little bit. So, perhaps you can just start by telling us uh, about the title, and so where you you offer a
2: bit of a typology of the idea of hope in the book. Can you can you walk us through that a little bit? Sure. So, Commanding Hope is intentionally a double entendre. Uh, I argue for a particular understanding or type of hope that uh, uh, commands our attention. It has a, it, it, It's not passive and weak, like I think a lot of people regard in the conventional notions of hope to be. So it's a much more muscular, realistic form of hope. Um, at the same time, I argue, and this is the other side of the double entendre, that we can make hope into what we need it to be. So we in a sense can command it to be a different kind of thing from what we conventionally understand it to be uh so that's quite intentional and explicitly laid out in one part nearly part of the book where where i i i, I um argue for a, a notion of hope that has a certain martial character mm-hmm. and uh there's a dedication to the book nobis non desistenda which is Uh, Latin for we must not give up. I got really into Rome in The Upside of Down, my book in the Mm mid-2000s, very fascinated by the nature of Rome. And I returned to it just with this on dedication in Commanding Hope. Uh, I had a Latin dedication to The Upside of Down too. And, uh, And in this case, the book is dedicated to my children because I think it's going to be a very difficult world for them. And uh, the thing about Rome uh, the Roman culture is that it was a fundamentally martial culture and they had an extraordinary sense of agency of capacity to to uh, shape their future in the direction that they wanted to to move right and that's kind of thing we need now for better or for worse you I mean, we can argue that Rome was a slave society and it was militaristic and all that stuff which is you know not particularly appealing but they are also, there was something profoundly admirable about the civilization because it got stuff done mm. and uh, we need to get stuff done now. So that's part mm. of what's going on with this title.
1: Yeah. And you, you mentioned your children there and they they sort of feature throughout the book in various places um, with, you know, them producing these drawings that you reflected yes. on. And can you tell us a little bit about how they inspired the book and some of those specific interactions that, that you bring mm. into
2: the book? Well, this is an ongoing story because, uh ben now is 17 and kate is 14 Mm -hmm. and when i started the book uh i guess they were four kate was four and ben was seven so about 10 years ago i actually started the book quite a bit before that but they come into the story at about that age Um, in fact the opening vignette in the book is uh features kate at four uh discovering an article about um, the impacts of human perturbations of the global environment, mm-hmm. and what kind of shifts, what kind of non-linearities that could mean for ecosystems around the planet. And she discovered this article for on, on my wife's desk. My wife Sarah Wolf is a professor of geography, mm-hmm. and uh, she asked, couldn't read it, of course. She picked it up. She said, "So what's the story about, mummy?" And uh, Sarah responded, "It's." It's about how the world might change when you're a little older, dear. Mm. And uh, it's profoundly poignant. I mean, it brings, frankly, it brings tears to my eyes still.
1: Yeah.
2: And uh, so Kate, not knowing what the implication of that was, flipped. The article over pulled out a couple of mummy's colored pens and drew a picture which is reproduced unfortunately you can only get the color version in the in the digital version of the book uh-huh. but it's a picture of a flower and a very tall flower on the landscape with a face on it and at the and the bottom of the flower is a little stick figure it's kate that's waving at the viewer but it's a very happy scene and then this is kate's idea of what the future is going to be like mm-hmm. when uh, when she grows up mm-hmm. so the book is really it's an ex- fundamentally an exercise in me working out what I should tell my children about how they can survive and what I think is going to be an extremely difficult world.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, so uh, let, let's just take a quick break here. Karen, you are evacuating it looks yeah, like. Karen's on. She's on the move. She's on the move. <laughs> are you going to the basement?
0: Yeah, I am going to my basement. Sorry. Oh, oh No. <laughs> It's pretty crazy out there right now. Well, good luck,
2: okay? (laughs) We'll probably lose you. Good luck.
0: We might lose power.
2: Okay. I don't think I can. can, can. Yeah, we'll say goodbye, okay? I'm sure she'll be fine. Um, Yes. Just two weeks
1: ago, there was this huge tornado in Uxbridge, just north of where I am. Yeah. And yeah, it seems more and more frequent, these crazy disasters.
2: Yeah yeah when we were moving out here, my wife said, So why do I want to move out there for the wildfires and and you know earthquakes and stuff?" And I said, Well, at least with respect to climate change, it will be a different kind of catastrophe in central North America and the Great Lakes region. It's going to involve big storms, yeah, right? yeah, so anyway, so yes the the book is really a an exercise in working out what I should tell my children and mm-hmm. what story I should tell them about the future. I, I asked that question at the beginning, I come back to it at the end.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: and uh, and and trying to articulate for myself too, a notion of hope that's grounded in a realistic understanding of the world mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the seriousness of the problems we face, but still offers some latitude for real hope and agency. Yeah, And I think as folks, read the book they see just how difficult this challenge is now mm-hmm. how how it it, it takes a, 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 you know i weave myself across this minefield of problems mm-hmm. i don't know whether i get to a successful place on the far far side mm-hmm. but uh you know specifically with the kids when the book arrived i got a box and the first two books out of the box I might sign one to Kate and one to Ben and handed them over and said, yeah. maybe you'll read this some point in the future. Yeah. And uh, they said, sure, dad. And then they, of course, they returned to the index and looked for where their names were mentioned and read those <laughs> sections, but they haven't looked at the rest of the book. But I think at some point, I hope they will find this useful and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I have to say that it was a useful exercise for me because doing the work I do and reading the stuff I do, you come up to that wall of despair frequently, as I'm sure you do too, and you Mm -hmm. need to have some articulated framework for holding on to some sense of possibility. Definitely.
1: Yeah. Teaching biodiversity conservation these days is kind of an exercise in, in that world in exactly. trying to trying to maintain positivity with uh, students. So that I find this book to be very instructive and I'm, I'm sure I'll use sections of it in my teaching. Um,
2: so one so thing I want- Stuart, just a little bit conversational here, but one of the things sure. that I, I realized after, after I finished this book just in the last little while that most arguments about hope are a, they are, I would call them the in sort of hyphens between all the words here, they're the it's not so bad uh, approaches to hope or it's not so bad philosophy of hope, which hmm. basically involves identifying and pointing to instances of things that are okay or hmm. good and positive, right and and trying to say, well, you know, there are these. There are these good things that are happening too it's not all just terrible now that's a perfectly reasonable exercise but too often it becomes an exercise in denial
1: mm-hmm.
2: it, it people pay attention to the places where the starfish are recovering and not noticing the 95 percent of the world where they, the populations are collapsing sure right sure we have to hold on to some of those instances of where things are going well but you know if a stoic were to have hope and Stoics actually don't like hope very much, mm. but it would be my kind of hope. It would be like really rooted and grounded in a in a in a brutal understanding of just how situation serious the situation is and then saying, OK, but how can we still have hope mm-hmm. even when we understand how serious the situation is? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And perhaps speaking on. on- Along those lines. So, one of the, um, I guess, tools that you bring into the book is this idea of cognitive effective mapping. Yes. Where, you know, I guess it's sort of a technical approach to illustrating how hope can be manifest across different, you know, institutions, worldviews, etc. et cetera. Right. Um, so can you, can you expand a little bit about that, you know, as a, as a method and perhaps elaborate a little bit on how it might be useful to somebody
2: trying to, you know, map out maybe their own perspective on sure. hope or, or talk to others about it. So um, the cognitive effect of mapping and another tool called the state space method are both Described in the last third of the book. Mm-hmm. And this is after I establish that of the worldview institution technology triplet, that mm-hmm. the place where we need to intervene, where we have the most possibility of making a, a really substantial fast change in the circumstances for humanity is at the worldview yes. level. And this happens to be where we've been doing our work, had been doing our work at the University of Waterloo, and where we're doing our work, especially at the Cascade Institute, looking at the structure and evolution of people's belief systems, their Mm -hmm. normative commitments, their ethical commitments, their senses of identity. So the last part of the book is really focused on, I call it, I have a chapter titled Into the Mind. We really Mm -hmm. go into the mind and start looking at the structure and how to think about more effectively about the the way people understand the world and especially understand each other, Mm -hmm. each other groups, uh, potential allies, potential antagonists. So this is part of what I call astute hope, which is a hope that's informed by by a very accurate understanding of the social environment we're in and the belief systems of the other actors in our social environment so that we can work with them or if necessary work around them or in in some kind of political contest be more effective in getting our ends in that kind of social environment because we understand exactly where other people are coming from so these two tools cognitive effective mapping and the state space method are tools that we've developed in our in our team Cognitive of mapping, specifically with the philosopher and cognitive psychologist Paul Thagard at the University of Waterloo, mm-hmm. the state space method is one that I've developed, and they and they allow us to get a much more detailed understanding of the of how other people see the world, mm-hmm. and in fact, in a sense, allow us to. I think they allow us to sort, kind of drop almost anthropologically into another person's head, and see why they perceive things so differently from us. I run through some thought experiments to show just to, to give people some tools for how we can drop into other people's minds more effectively. Now, human yeah. beings happen to be pretty good at this, mm-hmm. but when sometimes when we look at what's happening in these polarized social and political debates, we we default to just thinking the people we disagree with are either stupid or evil, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's very common. And what these tools allow us to do is understand that usually they're neither, Mm -hmm. but they're coming from a very different point of view. And understanding them better doesn't necessarily mean you're going to agree with them. It doesn't necessarily mean you can reach agreement with them. Mm -hmm. But what I find happens, and this has been very helpful for me, is that these people whom I would otherwise detest suddenly don't make me angry anymore Mm. because I know where they're coming from. That doesn't mean I agree with them, but it means I'm much better situated to try to figure out how to work my way across that landscape. Yeah. So, so that's um, part of the hope that I t- articulate that we, you know, if we're going to get to a good place or a better place in this world that seems to be in a kind of spiraling the drain right now, mm. it's going to involve very substantial changes in people's belief systems and understandings. And how can those be accelerated? And so these two tools are a ways of helping us Figure out how to find better pathways and move faster along new worldview pathways. Yeah, I really enjoyed
1: that part of the book. I think it's it's very instructive, and uh, just to see how these can be mapped out. You have those those very detailed tables with yes. the various components. Yeah. I think it's it's hard to describe on the podcast, <laughs> but I'd encourage people to pick up the book and check it out. I think it's it's quite
2: something. You know, I have to say that's interesting because. It, it it was a real dive off a high board there, without knowing if there's any water in the pool, because because um, it's not the kind of thing you would do in a in a book for a mass audience. I take people kind of right up to the frontier mm-hmm. of our research program.
1: Yeah, no, I think I think it'll hit home. So it's it, the book's been out for not not quite a year yet. Is that right? come out last? It summer? came
2: out. Well, it's out, been out for eighteen months. So it's just coming yeah. out in the paperback edition actually, and. Uh, it got a nice mention in the Global Mail a couple of weeks ago, so I was pleased about that.
1: Yeah, I see it popping up on lots of uh, you know essential reading lists. Still, So oh, good, it, it's and it's an idea that you know it's, it's something that we need to explore <laughs>
2: these days, right? There have been a lot of books about hope, and I'm not not to disparage or depreciate any of them, but th- this one is really in a very different headspace. This mm-hmm. is a this is a book about hope written by somebody who has been branded as a doommeister and a doomsayer for a long period of time and, <laughs> sure. and so if you if you don't want somebody you know painting your world in rose tinted hues mm. uh, but still want to know how to have hope i mean how does how does homer dixon of all people have hope Well, there you go <laughs> here's <Yeah>. the story <laughs>
1: yeah so maybe just to close out our conversation here, you've been very generous with your time. I just wanted to ask is if there's anything you're reading now or conversations that you're having with people you know maybe inside or outside of your your institute that that are bringing hope to you to you these days
2: Well um the particular focus of the Cascade Institute right now is is on what we call the poly crisis, Mm -hmm, which is the fact that kind of everything seems to be going haywire on the planet at the same time. So is that just a coincidence or are there some kind of synchronizing effects across these various crises? Climate Mm -hmm. change, authoritarianism, democratic decline, the war, pandemic, you know, how do these things link together? Mm -hmm. Now that might seem to be another exercise in despair. First of all, I think that, knowing these mechanisms is the first step to actually diffusing them. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, uh, there are three things in this world that that make it very different from what we've seen before in human history. One is the level of connectivity Mm -hmm. that we have among ourselves. The second is the level of scientific understanding we have of the problems we face. And the third is uh the emerging sense of shared fate we have on this planet mm-hmm. uh that we're either going to solve these problems together or we're all going to go down together whether it's a pandemic or a climate change or whatever and i think that those th- those three things give us a an opportunity to do something very different in the history of the human species because those three things have never been true simultaneously before in fact they've never been true even individually before and mm-hmm. all three of them are true now. So we have on one side we have this emerging polycrisis of everything hitting the fan. If you want to, you know, for a general <laughs> audience, all the stuff hitting the fan at the same sure. time and splattering everywhere, <laughs> uh, which which is scaring, terrifying people. At the same time, we have we have a a an evolving circumstance on the planet that suggests that we may be able to shift to something very different as a species, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what I call a second axial age. The first mm-hmm. axial age was between 200 and between 600 and 200 BCE. Five great civilizations all shifted their cosmologies about the same time, mm-hmm. didn't really communicate among each other, but they laid the ground, ground, the foundations for modernity. Mm-hmm. I think we're facing a similar kind of critical transition for humankind this century it's very exciting mm-hmm. I, and the last thing i'll say i guess is you know actuarially i'm 66 you know i probably have another 20 25 years to go so it's that take me out to somewhere in the mid 40s or something like that and i know mm-hmm. i know that uh, at the in the last you know if i if i'm still cognizant and aware, I, I will say, damn, I wish I know how this story is going to turn out <laughs> because it's an incredibly exciting period. Yeah, you know, It's like everything's on the line. And I think human beings do their best when they've got their backs to the wall. Hmm. And, we're, and uh, so I, I think we have no real understanding yet of how things will turn out this century. It's going to be full of surprises.
1: Yeah, all all this line of thinking, it it brings me back to a lot of what I read in in The Upside of Down, you know, back when it first came out. Uh, We read it in one of my undergrad classes and I loved it because it brings in all these ecological ideas to these broad scale societal uh, transitions and you know the ideas of complexity, resilience, and I think it's all it's all becoming more and more apparent how these things are playing out, especially given this this poly crisis that you just mentioned. So, um, so I just wanted to thank you for your work and for for taking the time to uh, to join us today. And on behalf of Karen, who we lost due to uh, possibly a tornado, hopefully not. But Julie back, she's fine, I'm sure. But thank you so much for joining us today and uh, and sharing uh, your perspective and your insights. So we wish you all the best for the future.
2: Yeah, thank you very much. It's been great.